Podcast One Production. Your morning agenda. Summer edition. Hello, Natasha Belling here. Thanks for your company this Tuesday, the 5th of January. As many of you are enjoying a well-deserved break, we are looking at the top news stories that have set the agenda in 2020 and will certainly still be making news throughout 2021. We'll be back with all the breaking news from Monday, the 11th of January. But until then, enjoy your morning agenda's summer edition. The silent epidemic that is sweeping the country as we continue to battle the COVID-19 crisis is suicide. While we've certainly come a long way in talking about mental illness, the statistics in this country are still sobering, with nine Australians every day taking their own lives. Fueled by the COVID-19 lockdowns, job losses and continued uncertainty, 2020 has seen a concerning spike in the number of Australians with depression, anxiety and eating disorders. So what do you say to someone after they say they're not okay? What are the warning signs that someone is really struggling and how can we help those most in need? In this episode, we chat with my fellow colleague and former sports reporter and presenter, Brad McEwen, who has a very personal story to share about suicide and his important message for others. We'll also chat with former Australian of the Year and Professor of Youth Mental Health at the University of Melbourne, Professor Patrick McGorry. And a warning, some of the content in these following interviews may be confronting. Brad, I had the great pleasure of working with you at 10 for almost a decade. I knew you as this great guy, loved his sport, but I had no idea that you had this uh, very challenging uh, life story with mental health. Tell us about what happened with your family. Uh, Thank you, Tash. And it's funny you you say that is because, you know, people often see me as someone who is, you know, so optimistic and and full of energy and positivity. And that's exactly, that's exactly who I am. But like so many people, myself and our family, we we have a story and a, a really confronting story. And that goes back to my teenage years, the late 1980s. my brother was struggling with his uh, mental health, uh, and uh, when I was 17, he was 19. He took his life, and that's something you never ever get over. You just you put one foot in front of the other because you have no choice. Uh, and I often say to people, you can't see the if the mental scars were represented by physical scars, it would be <laughs> it would be an awful mess. But mm. uh, you don't see it. And you just keep going. Uh, and then, you know, there we are, depths of despair, life can't get any worse. And then uh, a couple of years later, my father took his life. So, uh, you know, I mean, I could talk about the, the range of emotions you feel and it happens to you twice. Uh, initially anger, just because you just can't believe that it's happened again. But... Um, you know, and I often talk about our story. It's not my story; it's our family's story. But you know, out of that, what we, as a family, um, have made a concerted effort to do is to to talk and to be open and to communicate and hopefully get rid of this absurd stigma around mental health because it is absurd. It's part of life, and you know, 
by doing what we do, I know it gives us all a lot of purpose and it helps in our healing as well. Brad, for you, I can't begin to imagine the pain and the anguish and the despair you must have experienced at possibly the most vulnerable time in your life as a teenage boy, having your your dad, your hero, your older brother, your hero, uh, both die so suddenly and so tragically. What was your headspace like that at that moment? Because you would have been trying to help your mum as well, who would have been going to hell and back. Yeah, that's right. And it dawned on me one day, Tash, when I thought, gosh, there were there were three males and two females in our family, and I'm the only male mm. left. And not only mum, but my sister as well, who's 18 months younger than me. And yeah, I did, ignorantly, to be honest. I mean, you know, very noble that I wanted to sort of help and be there and be the man about the house. But it was only explained to me a number of years later that as much as my intentions were good, uh, when you're still only a teenager, I'm not emotionally at a point in my life where I can actually take on all of this. And as much as I try, you know, you become, you know, I've always been a a, a real, it's funny, it's, it's it's such a contrast where, yeah, I am very relaxed in some areas, but I am, as mum would say, a worry ward. And, mm-hmm. you know, I do worry about everyone. I worry about everyone. And, you know, you're always looking out for different people. And, yeah, so that, that was difficult. That was difficult. Um, you, you do tend to – I mean, I've always had a, you know, my own sort of level of anxiety and – I, I am prone to catastrophizing a lot, Tash, because you know when you when you've had grave fears for people within your family and it's the worst possible outcome, you don't have a lot of confidence that things are going to work out. However, what I have seen over the journey, we're talking the late '80s and early '90s, is we have come so far. When I talk about our family story, Tash, it's not a story of despair it's actually a story of hope because Mm. I have known so many people that have been struggling with their mental health in the years since and they got the help that they needed and it did wonders for them it really did wonders for them but it's all about opening up and being honest within ourselves and not feeling a sense of embarrassment or being ashamed because you know my headspace is not great. If you have a physical ailment, I often say to people, Tash, we, we come into the workplace on a Monday and we almost wear a physical um, problem like a badge of honour. Oh, my shoulder's a bit sore. I've done this. Oh, God, I'm not so good. well um, with my heart. I better go and get it checked. But, you know, every Monday, how are you? Oh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. But how many of us are not good when somebody asks that? And yet, why do we hide it? There's no reason to hide it. We need to be open about these things and we need to get help. Brad, like you, many of us have lost friends or family with suicide. Many of us may blame ourselves saying we didn't do enough to help or we didn't see the warning signs. What would you say to people that are blaming themselves about this? Absolutely be aware of the warning signs and, you know, do... do um, you know, jump on, you know, I'm a Beyond Blue ambassador, I've been for a decade. Jump on, have a look at the different signs and symptoms of different simple mental health conditions as well as suicide. And they're things that you can look out for. However, I know that you cannot 
you can't be with someone and watching someone 24 hours a day. And that is, that is terrifying. I know how terrifying it is. And the other thing, and Tash, you and I experienced this, is that people are very good at hiding their pain. They're, we are better actors than we give ourselves credit for. And how many people do we know that have suicided and we later find ourselves thinking, I, I, I had no idea. They, they seem so upbeat. And yet we know, we know afterwards, tragically, that they were in such a state of despair and turmoil. So it's really hard. People always think that they need to save me, but they can't save me. I need to save myself. But, but having that support and, and care and love and understanding along the way is crucial, absolutely crucial. You mentioned before, Brad, that you've turned your extraordinarily tragic story into one of hope now because you are doing extraordinary things in the mental health space to talk about um, that boys do cry, we all cry, we can be sad, that it's normal like a physical injury, a medical or a, I guess a mental injury is okay. What would you say to people that say um, you need to toughen up, you need to get over this? Well, I'd say you're wrong. Uh, and I would say, you know, I, I go back to the, you know, the tragic circumstances surrounding the loss of, you know, AFL and favourite Danny Frawley. And, you know, Danny's, Danny's quote was, and, and many people are familiar with it, that you know, he thought that manning up was suffering in silence. And then he, he, he realised, even though we weren't able to save Danny, that he realised and he knew that manning up is putting your hand up. And the other thing too is what we know is by people opening up, you know, by me talking about you know my mental health or hey I've seen counsellors and you know when I worked with you and I've seen a psychologist and why did I do it because it made me feel better and it fixed the problem that I had at the time. So then by opening up and saying oh yeah go and get your help, it's not only it helps me because I get to share my stuff, but it also encourages other people. You go well, hang on. Hang on, he was not in a great place. He went and got help, and now he's feeling better. Well, why don't I do the same thing? Mental health issues are part of life, just like physical health issue. It is part of our makeup. It is part of our DNA. So there is nothing to be ashamed about. I'm telling you, there is nothing to be embarrassed about. Get off the couch. Get over the the the. the your issue that you think you might have and first port of call for me, go and see your GP. Hey, have a chat. It just might be the beginning of the best years of your life. I know your mum and sister are very proud of you and can I say I am sure your dad and brother looking down on us right now would be incredibly proud of you and the incredible work you are doing to help others with mental health issues. Thank you, Brad. Thanks, Tash. Professor Patrick McGorry has been leading the way in trying to solve our mental health crisis. The former Australian of the Year and Professor of Youth Mental Health at the University of Melbourne says we have come a long way in how we talk about mental illness, but he admits we still have a long way to go. Today we hear his thoughts on his solutions, especially as we prepare for a wave of cases in the wake of the pandemic. Professor, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
We've seen an incredibly tough year in 2020. We had the devastating and deadly bushfires in Australia and then the onslaught of 2020 COVID crisis. How is the mental health of this country at the moment? Well, it's, uh, I think it's pretty bruised and battered, actually. Um, uh, uh, you could almost say it's been a perfect storm from a mental health point of view. We've, we've survived the COVID um, uh, disaster quite well in some ways, in cer- certainly in terms of death rates. Um, governments have done a pretty good job here, and I think they also did a pretty good job uh, helping us recover from the bushfire disaster too. But when you look at it, these sorts of things have a very significant effect, um, probably to some extent, a temporary effect. You know, even things like lockdown, most people will actually recover from that. But when you look at the effects on the economy and, and the cumulative effects of these disasters, it's going to tip a lot of people over the edge into mental ill health, mental illness, and, and sadly, suicide as well in some cases. In regards to the suicide rate in this country, Professor, it's now shown that nine Australians every day take their own lives. That's an extraordinarily concerning statistic. Yeah, I think the Prime Minister has tapped into this because he's actually appointed a suicide prevention advisor even before the pandemic. And um, and this is because the, the momentum behind suicide risk has been increasing in recent years. And, and uh, it's gone from eight people dying a day to nine people dying a day. This is before the pandemic. So it's really a, a rising tide and we've got to turn it back. And um, so it, it's it's crucial. And of course, Suicide is the tip of the iceberg of mental illness and mental ill health. People don't die from suicide if they're in a mentally healthy condition, do they? I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. Now, obviously, a combination of social and personal forces combined to put people in that red zone, but we've got to think about it in terms of helping them with an acute mental health crisis. Emotional pain or mental illness drives people to that point, and we just haven't got the systems to, to rescue people at that point. What systems do you think we need? Why do you think our hospital systems, our medical fraternity, um, I guess general society is failing or are failing these people suffering mental health issues? Well, as the Productivity Commission report showed, we're underinvesting seriously in mental health care. Um, Less than half of the people that need mental health care are able to access it in a timely and high quality way. And if that was happening for any other major non-communicable disease area like cancer or diabetes, less than half the people with these illnesses being able to access healthcare, there'd be a national outcry. But certainly we've had heaps of inquiries and reports. Uh, we've got a Royal Commission in Victoria. But the investment must follow. It has never followed, really. We've had uh, incremental investments, some of which have been very good. And I think the federal government in particular has done some good things in recent years. But but actually, um, we, we've neglected this area terribly, and partly that's because of confusion amongst um, you know the, the public and, and I think some of the mental health leaders about what's really required. The very first thing we require is a, is, a, is a health system that makes sure that access and quality is at the same standard as any other health area, and that is absolutely not the case. Then you can start to talk about prevention and tackling the causes like we do in heart disease and, and diabetes, but that's a much tougher ask. Why do you think we've seen an explosion in mental health cases, Professor? Do you think it's because we are talking about it more, that many years ago it wasn't spoken about? Or do you think there is this perfect storm scenario, especially in 2020, where some people are actually calling it stacked stress? Well, I think, um, you know, certainly from, from the point of view of young people, there's a genuine worsening in the mental health across the world, um, in the mental health of teenagers and emerging adults. You know, so there's 
12 to 25 system uh, age group that we've developed a good system in Australia to begin to tackle through Headspace. You know, it's focused on this emerging adults from puberty through to mid-20s, but measurement of um, need for care in surveys and in the community showing this is a worsening situation. And that's got to be due to major changes in the world, in society, in the economics of, of the world as well, the casualization of workforces, climate change, the insecurity that young people now feel and the fragility of their lives. Um, so it's got to be those sorts of factors that are driving this. But while we try to tackle those things, those are big geopolitical things to change, hard to change because they're, they're political things and, and economic things. But in the meantime, we've actually got to mount a, a, a safety net and, 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 and help these young people navigate those, those periods because we can help them uh, survive and, and prosper, but, but um, it takes... Um, a proactive system of care and a broadly focused one, not just focused on hospitals and emergency departments. So how do we help people, especially vulnerable teenagers, get the help that they need? How do we, I mean, we've seen great campaigns talking about, are you okay? But if someone yeah. does say to you, no, I'm not okay, what do you say next? And what are some of the warning signs that show this just isn't a down day? There are some serious issues and this person needs help. Yeah, well, um, of course, you know, 50% of these teenagers and young adults, especially the young adults, 18 to 25, are, are not going to be okay as they navigate the pathway to adult life. Um, so when when they're not okay, um, we've got to recognise that, as you say. So parents and even the young, the young people themselves, we've involved young people a lot in, you know, I suppose, design of responses and services, and that's been incredibly helpful to, to us. So we know actually how to solve the problem. They advise us and... and and uh, co-design, you know, the response. So, so they have to understand when their mental health is is not not um, okay, and it's not just teenage angst. Because, as you say, people do become moody and and uh, and, and struggle because of the challenges of beca- of being a young person transitioning from childhood to adulthood. It's not an easy process. We all remember it. So you don't want to medicalize or or, or pathologize um, just normal stresses and strains of that period of life. But on the other hand, it's not normal to be depressed for days or weeks on end, to have suicidal thoughts, to be self-harming, to actually have body image disturbances, to have psychotic symptoms, to have substance use, um, self-medication. All of these things require therapeutic intervention and, and we need systems of care that can deliver that in a way that is acceptable and trusted by young people. Unfortunately, we have, the, we have got that beachhead in Australia of the Headspace system. It's a trusted brand and it needs to be much more strongly invested in, supported and built upon. Do you mean head in the sand as in we don't want to acknowledge the problem, we just think it will go away, toughen up, move on? Well, that's always been the problem with mental illness and mental ill health. Um, people have assumed that, you know, because, uh, you know, I suppose especially in Australia, a stoic sort of... Um, she'll be right, mate, sort of attitude and it's valued if people are sort of stoic and, and uh, resilient and tough. But, you know, that's that's um, obviously great if you can actually do that. But but um, it, at least 50% of us are not able to do that. It doesn't mean we're not resilient, by the way, because some of the most resilient people I've ever seen have been people with severe mental illnesses that despite that suffering, they're able to kind of transcend it and, and live uh, positive lives. And it's a bit like when people, um, you know, in the Paralympics, you know, they've suffered a massive insult to their physical capacity, but it brings out resilience in them. You see that with people with mental illness all the time. So the idea that if you're resilient and tough and strong, um, that you can't get mental illness, well, that's clearly not the case. 
There's a genuine concern that uh, come March next year, when a lot of the government support schemes such as JobKeeper and Seeker come off, that we could see a second wave of mental health issues. Is that something you're really concerned about? Yeah, I think the government's done a great job actually by boosting those those programs, and it's probably cushioned you know the the mental health effects of, of the pandemic uh, as well as the economic effects. So all credit to Prime Minister and the federal government for doing that. Um, and it may well be possible in Australia to to taper off JobKeeper. Um, I think the the economic indicators are probably suggesting that. Although I'm not an expert in that area, I'll leave that to the experts. But I do have concerns about about JobSeeker, which was at a, an incredibly inadequate level even prior to the pandemic, and we saw a tremendous amount of suffering as a result of that and the mental health problems. Um, in young people in particular because of this problem and also the way Centrelink operates to really sort of make it very difficult for for people in that situation. That's been a a deteriorating situation for years. So so I think Job Seeker absolutely needs to be um, retained at a higher level and, and strengthened and, you know, respect for people in that situation. You've got to be able to live and survive and um, it's not their fault that they don't have a job when unemployment rates are very high. Unemployment rates for young people are, are, are double what they are for older workers. So, you know, it's, it's not your fault if you can't find a job at the moment. Um, and that judgmental attitude, again, is, is, is part of the problem. If someone's listening to this today that is concerned about their own mental health or that of a loved one, what would your key piece of advice be to them? Well, I guess even though you might feel um, because of the effects of the, of the illness itself, you might be not positive or optimistic about it getting better, don't give in to that feeling because it's part of the problem. Um, reach out, talk to someone you trust and ask that person or make sure that person helps you to advocate for access to expert care because that's hard to find in the current system. It takes a bit of uh, persistence, effort and even some shopping around to navigate the kind of confusing sort of system. Primary care is the best starting point. GPs are definitely the best access point. Or if you're a young person, a headspace centre. But basically, find the pools of trust, as I, as I often say. Find the initial pool and then try to link it up to the next one so you do get the expert care that you need. And people get better. So suicide, for example, it's a temporary state. Very few people remain in a suicidal frame of mind for, for, for that long because it's, it's, um, it's an unbearable period of emotional pain. So something's got to give. And obviously we don't want it to give in terms of the, the person's death. We want it to go the other way. But if you do survive, it will one way or another resolve. And, and obviously treatment and, and, and support helps. So don't give up. Hang in there, persist, and make sure that you get the, the help and the expert help that you really deserve and need to flourish and survive. Professor Patrick McGorry, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for everything you are doing in the mental health space in our country and right around the world. Thanks very much indeed. And if you or anyone you know needs help or needs to talk with someone, there are some wonderful organisations that are available. You can call Lifeline on 131114 or you can head to beyondblue.org.au. And don't forget your morning agenda with the latest news headlines is back from Monday the 11th of January. Tomorrow we'll be back with another episode in the summer series when we speak with much-loved author, teacher and counsellor Maggie Dent. 
She will share her secrets on how to raise teenagers and why great relationships are all about unconditional love and connection. I'm Natasha Belling. Thanks so much for your company. Have a great day and we look forward to seeing you tomorrow.